with another edition of the BSN Station Sport and History Podcast uh, from across the pond. I have the great pleasure of speaking today with Johanna Mellis. Mellis? Mellis? Mellis, like Ellis. Mellis. <laughs> um, sorry. You know, if I was in any way prepared, I would have asked you that before I hit record. It's quite all right. Everyone, everyone <laughs> does it. <laughs> um, okay, so Johanna is currently an assistant professor at your sinus university? College. College? It's all two good. for two. Yeah, I'm doing I'm I'm doing great. And you're far too kind to me. Um so what I'm going to do to spare any more blushes is ask Johanna to tell us a little bit about herself and her research interests. Great. So first, I really want to thank you so much, Connor, for inviting me on the podcast. Um, I should say I have like lots of admiration for the BSSH and I went to their conference in Worcester. I can't really say it. Um, okay, good. And um, in 2017, I think, and it was such a group of like friendly people. And I should also say that the support, the financial support for like graduate students and career, early career researchers is probably the best I've seen in any organization I belong to. So kudos to BSSH for like really trying to get a sense of how can they help, you know, people early on, because I just think it's fantastic. Um, okay, so a little bit about myself. So um, let's see, I'm from Richmond, Virginia. And um, one reason why I got into sport history is because I was an athlete growing up. I, um, I swam on a club team in Virginia, and then I swam Division One at my college in uh, South Carolina. And so I've literally always been in, interested in sort of how do athletes live their lives. Um, but I never thought about it in terms of an academic endeavor. It was just kind of a pleasure thing that I did for fun. And then... Um, and then in terms of like my background, so after graduating from the College of Charleston in South Carolina, I got my master's at the University of Florida in European history, uh, but it was not until the PhD that I, I guess, found out that sport history was a thing. Um, I had literally like never read anything about sport history in any of my coursework. And then my advisor uh, is a firm believer in her students um, pursuing topics that they are really passionate about and that they love. And she said, told me one day, you know, I just read this book by Bob Edelman on Sp Spartak Moscow. And she was like, I was on a book prize that awarded this prize to his book. You should check it out. Um, and then I read it and was totally fascinated and had no idea that this sort of field existed. And then from there, I got really interested in Hungarian sport history because I already knew Hungarian. And um, I guess that's the short of sort of where I am today. And in terms of my research interests, it's, you know, Central European history and oral history, sport history, memory studies, increasingly world and global history. Um, and I guess I'll end there, I think. So what were you studying kind of at master's level and in the initial stages of the PhD before you pivoted towards kind of strict sport history? So I was doing 20th century Hungarian history and I learned Hungarian as part of my master's. I got like a, a FLAS, which is a U.S. government scholarship to learn like a lesser known language. And that paid for my master's, which was fantastic. And then for the master's, I studied um, it was about post-World War II reconstruction in Budapest 
and like the denazification process, sort of how they figured out, you know, who reported and sort of spied on people for the Nazis who had their property taken away because they were Jewish and um, sort of things like that. Um, and so even though the like thematic topic was not the same, it was still sort of 20th century post-World War II uh, Hungarian history. And then maybe you could speak a little bit more about kind of the dissertation which you completed two years ago now, 2018, I want to say. Yeah, two years. I didn't realize it was two years ago. Um, uh, yeah. Uh, sorry to remind you of that. <laughs> no, no, it's quite all right, quite all right. Um, right, so my dissertation was about um, Hungarian sport during the Cold War, and it initially was focusing on um, like the voices and perspectives of athletes, and that still is like a key part of my research, but I was really first looking at sport in Hungary as kind of like a lo like a national case study. Um, and I started interviewing athletes and started hearing these like amazing stories about athletes smuggling goods and being able to buy their own apartment and buy their own car, which was like unheard of for average mm. people who were not allowed to travel abroad or had to wait, you know, 10 years to get an apartment or a car or something. So I started doing interviews and hearing these incredible stories that really kind of taught me something differently about um, both athletes under communism, but also life under communism. And then um, I started sort of looking more at the international sort of influence of like international sport on Hungary. And I received a Nash uh, dissertation grant, to, which was amazing and allowed me to go to Lausanne to look at the IOC archives. And because a lot of people like Toby Ryder and Tommy Hunt were telling me, you know, you should look at some international stuff. I think this should be interesting. And it sort of allowed me to kind of expand the scope of the project and look at how international sport focused Hungarian sport and vice versa. And because I deal almost exclusively with dead people, I'm always in complete awe of anyone who can actually conduct oral history. So being based at Florida, was it difficult to get those initial contacts or had you made some of them kind of in your study abroad program? So that's a great question. So I made, I did my initial interviews through contacts with people that I knew in my field. So for example, the first person I interviewed, which is still probably my best interview, um, he was, he was a fencer in Hungary from the sixties to the 1980s. And he was the father-in-law of my Hungarian language teacher in Florida, which was like such a stroke, like stroke of luck. I mean, it was, it yeah. was crazy. Uh, my teacher was like, you should, you should interview him. If you're doing this project, you should really speak to him. And he has some like, you know, cool smuggling stories. And, and then I'm like, okay, sure. Sounds great. And then um, sort of through him, and through my language teacher, um, I found some people and then I found some other people through, for example, there's this um, sport management uh, professor named Emesha Ivan, and she is at St. John's University. And um, she was a basketball player at the Central Sports School in the 70s. And so she knew a ton of people that I can interview. So the first few people were through contacts. And then it was eventually like a snowball effect where people just referred to me to other people once they kind of trusted me and kind of got a sense of what kinds of questions I was asking and that sort of thing. And did it cluster around certain sports or was it kind of like almost across the board? Like was it primarily fencing and basketball or 
did you get like a broad sweep? Yeah, so I didn't want to just focus on one sport in part because if anybody knows anything about Hungarian sport, it's usually about football or soccer um, because Hungarians were like famous in the 50s with the magical Magyars and the Arani Chapad in Hungarian. Um, So I, but outside of that, people know literally nothing. And so I wanted to kind of the broadest swath. Um, But because of the connections I had with people, I interviewed a, a couple fencers, a lot of pentathletes, interestingly, um, which from an American perspective, like we don't really know much about pentathlon. It's like not a popular sport. Um, I know I, it's a term. <laughs> I mean, that's, I had no idea what it was about. I had to like watch videos and really educate myself because <laughs> I knew nothing about it. Um, and some swimmers, a couple water polo players, which swimming and water polo, uh, water polo are huge in Hungary. Um, so I tried to, I got a couple football players. I like tried to get as many from different sports, but there were definitely some like basketball, like pentathlon where I had like multiple people. And again, coming from my place of complete ignorance, what did the oral history kind of add that wasn't coming up or wasn't immediately obvious within the official documents that maybe you saw at Lausanne or in Hungary itself? No, I'm, I'm so glad that you asked that question because um, most of the documents, I mean, most people know that, you know, archival records are, you know, they created by governments, institutions who have a very specific purpose for collecting information. It's kind of like a imperialist uh, project, you could say. They're trying to collect information about their citizens or the people um, in their community in order to sort of prove certain points about their own governance um, or sort of help them implement policies. And so I knew already that the communist documents were going to be problematic um, or at least challenging to deal with and that there was going to be, um, (laughs) you know, certain information that the government was not going to want to put in writing for fear of breaking certain rules. Um, And so anyway, so the athlete perspective added a lot of information about smuggling, for example. (laughs) Um, Sorry, I'm throwing food to my dogs in the background (laughs) just in case people are wondering what the disjointing is sorry continue no worries your multitasking is is impressive um (laughs) so so basically the the communist government documents um they only mention certain things and they only present athletes as victims of the state because the only time an athlete's name really came up in both the government um like the the government institutional archives but also the secret police archives athletes only come up when the government has a specific interest in like monitoring them or or sort of putting their name in writing um and sometimes there were documents about like an athlete would request to receive an apartment or to sort of be able to move out of their parents house was a huge deal and so someone would like submit a request you know, I have I have won two gold medals and I, you know, would really like to have a two bedroom apartment for my family so that I can relax and have space to work out, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but even still, you know, athletes are in this like sort of subservient position. Um, and then obviously in the secret police archives, it's all about secret police agents who are either monitoring athletes or athletes who have been turned into informants by the secret police. Um and so the, the oral histories provide a lot of details that are not in those documents, such as specifics about, 
you know, their smuggling, but also the ways that they sort of worked around the government restrictions um, and sort of how they, a lot of them really thrived, um, particularly in the 70s and 80s. A lot of them became successful businessmen um, through their government contacts, but also through international contacts that they received, like through, you know, in the locker rooms when they were talking with other athletes. Um, and, you know, that stuff is not in archives unless someone believed that information to be particularly important. Yeah. Um, yeah. So it really like allowed me to kind of get some of that bottom up history. That's just not available and also allow like the athletes to sort of speak for themselves and have like a say about how they're represented, which was really important to me. And was it difficult kind of coming from the U S and speaking to the Hungarian athletes? Was there like a trust barrier or anything initially that had to be overcome? And actually connected to that point, are they still predominantly in Hungary or are they, say, in the United States or in other parts of Europe? Yeah. So first, I guess I'll answer the second question first. So most of the athletes are still in Hungary. And um, this is in part because after, so in 1956, there's a major revolution and um, Toby Ryder one of my friends and, and colleagues wrote this fantastic book about how after the revolution, um, the American sort of government and Sports Illustrated brought a bunch of athletes here and like paraded them around as these like athletes of freedom, you know, it was very much like a Cold War pro-American propaganda thing. Um, but then a lot of athletes, once they were here, realized that they would need to work like a full-time job in order to actually be able to compete. Whereas in Hungary, they didn't have to. They were paid for working out two and three times a day and they, you know, had access to good food and could travel. And so some of them actually went back to Hungary um, and like told their friends, you know, listen, like the if you go to the West, like life's not so great there because you can't actually be the athlete that you can be here. So that's why from the 60s to the 80s, most athletes actually stayed in Hungary. And there were a few who defected here and there, but a lot of them stayed and, and they were like heroes within socialist society. And, and the Hungarians still revere them today, even though they're from the communist period, they still see them as like these huge like sport heroes. So most of them are still there, uh, which made it easy to to interview them. Um, but in terms of the trust, you know, that was something I was like really, really worried about, like like a Westerner um, yeah. being an outsider. And, you know, I, I speak Hungarian, but I'm not fluent. Um, and actually, languages are really hard for me. Um, so my Hungarian will probably never be where I want it to be. Um, but so I was really worried about this issue of trust. And so what I did was I always had a Hungarian friend, um, from a PhD that I was associated with in Hungary. And so I always had a friend who worked as like my colleague and was sort of the main interpreter in case I didn't understand something, but also that, so it wasn't just me, this Westerner coming and asking you, you know, questions about your life, but like I am working with you know, a compatriot to ask you questions. And I just want to listen to whatever you want to share. And so usually about like 30 minutes into the interview, it was clear that the person would kind of relax and get a sense of, you know, what questions I was asking and that I wasn't just asking about doping. You know, I, I did ask them about it, but I would like tell them beforehand, I am going to ask about doping. It's totally within like your rights to choose how you answer 
Um, cause I didn't want it to be like a secretive thing. I was really worried about that trust and I wanted to build mm -hmm. that with them. Mm -hmm. And in terms of kind of having your colleague there with you helping, how you approach the oral histories? Did you have a consistent method from the get-go or was it something that kind of evolved as you learned more about the method and kind of implementing it in the field? You know, a little bit of both because I always wanted to get like a life history of the athletes in part because I was really interested in, you know, what kinds of, um, how do I say, what kinds of people go into which kinds of sports in Hungary. For example, like fencing and modern pentathlon is like more of an intellectual sport and it's more of a sport of like the middle classes. Um, and not just in Hungary, but I think elsewhere, whereas even in Hungary, like boxing and soccer was a little bit more of a working class sport. And so I definitely wanted to get a sense of like their family histories, what the, what happened to their families during World War II, were they Jewish, were they not? So from the beginning, I always started with like their, their childhood, what their parents did, you know, and then got into questions of how did they get into sport? Did their parents do it? You know, how did they find out about their sport club and sort of to kind of build that history or so they were building that history for me, I should say. Um, but then I think as I learned more about doing oral history, I got more interested in questions about like, why do you remember things in certain ways? How do you view the communist period now and kind of trying to get a sense of like the memory studies analysis aspect of it? Um, which to me, I always, I really love those questions. Um, like for example, one question that I always asked at the end of the interviews was, you know, what is the main difference between how sport was run under communism versus today? And most of them had like very positive things to say about the sport system under communism, not communism itself, because hmm. communism itself is terrible, but they would say really great things about the sport system, which is really interesting to me that they would like separate the two. And actually, on that point, how did they, or did they comment on, say, people who did defect? Like, how did they view them kind of several years or several decades after the fact? You know, they were actually very understanding, I think. They did not view the athletes who defected particularly negatively. I mean, there were a few people who kind of had the sense that, or believed that, you know, an athlete maybe sold out to the West, um, I guess sold out is kind of the wrong word, but you know, like they were chasing money and that's why they defected, but that was only a few people. And I think a lot of people viewed the, the, the athletes who defected in a kind of a sympathetic way, you know, in terms of the 56 revolution, like people didn't know what, 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 what was happening to their families back home, because when that happened, when p athletes were defecting, life at Hungary was completely chaotic and the government had not totally um, sort of taken charge of the situation and like people were being shot and, you know, it was just, it was really dangerous. So they didn't know what was happening at home. And so I think people understand that the people who defected left for important reasons, but even people who left later, I think they just kind of were like, well, they had their own personal reasons. There were some cases of people needing family members needing like medical attention that they couldn't get in Hungary. And so they defected because they needed those services. Um, so it was more positively than I think maybe from an American or Western perspective, we might think. Yeah. And actually out of interest, so mentioning the 56 revolution in terms of their life history, 
I suppose I don't know it's a difficult question, but what was seen as more of like a rupture? Was it the Second World War or kind of the revolution? Like what played more of a like focal point in some of their narratives about their upbringing or about kind of the political turmoil of those decades? That's a great question. I don't Is think it? I, have... I feel like I muddled it. <laughs> oh, no, I, I understand. Right. So which which played a bigger role in like their their memories. Right. World War Two mm. or the 56 revolution. You know, I would say from there, because for most of the athletes and, and just most people from the former Eastern Bloc in general, I think the communist period is in some ways like a stigma for some people or it really like defines their life, their lives and like their memories. So I think for a lot of people, World War II and like the communist takeover together are like enormous moments in their lives because in their mind that like cut them off from the West and it cut them off from maybe a life that could have been better Hmm. and instead was a period of a lot of repression. Um, But I guess viewed from like my perspective, if I'm looking at sport as like a whole, 56 is a major moment because uh, because of the fact because so many athletes defected, um, the sport leadership was really worried about more athletes defecting. And so what they did is they ended up um, kind of motivating athletes more through rewards than punishments, whereas in the 1950s, it was much more through punishments. For example, in 1951, a uh, soccer player famously was was killed uh, because he tried to defect to the West. And um, so after 56, it was more about, you know, we want to we persuade athletes to stay. And so because of that sort of shift and because athletes knew that life in the U.S., for example, was really hard for an athlete, a lot of them realized that the Hungarian context under socialism wasn't so bad. Hmm. Um, and so from sort of my perspective, 56 is a bigger moment. But I think from there is I think World War II and the communist takeover is probably a bigger moment. Okay. And so something that kind of popped into my head then you talked about this like pivot in approach between like harsh punishments versus a kind of carrot approach where we'll, we'll make your life a little bit easier. To what extent was there like a, a deal of interaction between the sport leader and the athletes themselves. Mm-hmm. Like, did the sport leaders kind of make a point of, you know, interacting with the athletes on a regular basis, or is it very much a, like you're over here and we're over there, and it's you just going to trickle down? You know, I it's a, I think I think for like Olympic level level athletes, so athletes who either had Olympic medal potential or had achieved, you know, had won Olympic medals sport leaders kind of had an interest in working a little bit more closely with them, you know, to, to make sure that they stayed in the country and that they were, you know, training right and sort of supporting them and sort of their sport endeavors. Um, but also a lot of these sport leaders, they thought they wanted to be friends with the athletes, um, which is really interesting. So for example, the sport leader who um, was really big in the 1950s and 1960s, his name is um, Jula Hedji. Um, in English, it would kind of sound like um, Gula Hedji. I, I, I can I can sort of tell you later what it's spelled like. So if you want to put it on the website, you can. Um, but a lot of athletes that I interviewed would tell me, you know, oh, I was friends with him. Or they would say, oh, you know, he was a communist on the outside. 
but on the inside, he was a fan of sports. Oh, okay. And like multiple people told me this and people told me this, a lot of actually the defectors who left. And so I did interview uh, with, with Toby Ryder. He and I interviewed a couple of the athletes who defected to the U.S. and are still here. And several of them said, you know, like I was on good terms with him or he was a communist on the outside, but a sports fan on the inside. And, you know, these people don't really have any many reasons to like protect this guy. And he died a long time ago. Um, and even, and then the sport leader who was uh, big in the seventies and eighties, his name is, um, Ishvan Buddha or Steven Buddha. Um, he was the one who announced that Hungary was going to boycott the 84 Olympics. So he is like a major figure. And even though he boycotted the Olympic games or he was the one that led that still athletes felt pretty positively about him, or at least the male athletes did. Um, and was there a difference actually between kind of male and female athletes in their experience of kind of patronage and support under the communist regime? Yeah, so that's some a, a topic, the sort of gender analysis is something that I'm going to do more in my book. In the dissertation, I just didn't have time and like all the sort of materials for. So officially, men and women were supported financially very similarly. And it is hard to get concrete data or concrete information because um, I found only like three documents that referred to athlete salaries during the entire period, like literally only three documents. One is in like 50, 1953, another one I think is in 58, and then another one in 1972. Um, and so based on that and based on what athletes told me, um, men and women had similar salaries for their jobs. Most of them had like these fake paper jobs where they would just essentially show up and receive a paycheck once a week or once a month, but would like train at their sport clubs all day long, um, which was quite, quite incredible at the time, considering the huge gender disparities in the U.S. and elsewhere mm -hmm. in the world. And is one reason why like Hungary was so successful in the 1950s and the Soviet Union too, but was because their female athletes were dominating sports. And um, so that's sort of on an, on, on an official level, but kind of once you delve below that, um, one thing that was really important um, under communism was that um, because under communism, the government controlled access to all goods, whether it be like food, or textiles or like jobs or apartments or whatever, that it didn't matter if you had a ton of money because there was a limited amount of number of goods available. And so you couldn't just like buy your way into getting goods. Some people didn't really have money anyways. So the way that you received access to goods was through your connections. And if you knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody, then maybe you could, you know, um, get an opportunity for your child to go to a really advanced um, high school, for example, or you could maybe travel abroad and go on a vacation in East Germany, for example, if you had a connection. Um, and so because athletes were really closely tied to the state, they had a lot of connections, but because the sport leadership was very much male oriented and was a patriarchal system, men had more, more contacts, many more contacts than women did. And so when it came to like receiving the same opportunities that required these kinds of connections, women oftentimes didn't have them. 
Um, like for example, there's this one basketball coach that I interviewed who was a, who was a woman and, um, she wanted to have this special title, which was the like master coach title. And with this title, you could receive, you know, opportunities, you could coach different kinds of groups of people, maybe coach an Olympic team. And, um, the male sport leadership continued to deny her this master coach title and it's not really clear why, except that it probably has something to do with her gender and also because she was very successful. And the men were not happy that a female coach was so successful. Mm. Um, so it's it's kind of complicated, but that's sort of where I'm at right now in the research. Okay, that sounds fascinating. Definitely something that, sorry, I was trying another treat to my dog who's getting fatter by the minute. Okay. Uh, but that, definitely something that kind of like brings out the importance of what you're doing because you can look at, like those regional and gender disparities. So one thing, and this is complete self-interest, because I, I think you use social media very well, and you, you use it to discuss kind of pedagogy and teaching uh, methods very well. So I'm one of those people who's kind of lurking and liking on a lot of your tweets. Um, so something I'm interested in is how you approach bringing like sport history into the classroom and using oral history in the classroom, because it seems to be something that you're quite passionate about. Mm-hmm. Um, at the moment definitely so and and I should say in, in one respect I'm lucky and that it's a little bit easier at my school uh, so our sinus college is a small liberal arts liberal the liberal arts I can never say that <laughs> um school it only has about 1500 students which is like insanely small compared to UT Austin <laughs> and um, um it's a division three school and about 40 to 50% of the students are student athletes, which is like a, a huge number. And so in a lot of ways, a lot of people are naturally interested in sports because it's very connected to their lives. Now, in terms of like my pedagogical approach is it's sort of twofold. And one is that, so I, I am a world historian. That's sort of my title in my department. And so I teach world history surveys. I teach a world history of World War One. I. I teach um, world history of like colonialism. And so in all of these classes, I really try to devote at least one day to looking at like a case study of sport history to show how we can use sport history to analyze some kind of dynamic that's related to our course themes, whether it's like nationalism and memory, whether it's colonialism, whether it's like resistance to colonialism, um, and so that's sort of one way that I do it to kind of give them like a teaser of like, this is how you do sport history. And it's really cool. Um, you know, and if you want to do more, more sport history, I teach classes about this or that's what I've been telling students. Um, and so in the fall, I'm teaching my first like sport specific class at our sinus, which is a world history of sport, which I'm super excited about. Um, yeah, and it's it's going to be a 100 level class, which will be a challenge, but I'm hoping it'll convince a lot of like athletes, but also fans and stuff like that. And, you know, they can do this and they don't have to be an advanced history student to be able to do that. Um, now, in terms of the oral history, so I also teach an oral history class and probably what you saw was the class I taught last semester. And every time that I teach the class, we're going to be creating a new um, oral history collection for the school. And last semester, we did one on the women's field hockey program at our sinus. And um, probably very few people know this, but the Philadelphia area has this um, super rich history of women's field hockey. 
Um, it's Ursinus, it's Westchester, it's Swarthmore. All of the schools in this area have this really incredible field hockey history. And Ursinus actually sent several athletes and coaches to the 1984 Olympic Games where the field hockey team won bronze, um, which was like a huge deal. And it's it's definitely like a huge part of our uh, school's history. We have like kind of a, a part of the gym that's like dedicated to the women's field hockey program, um, which it, which is like pretty unique. And so that was a real like natural sort of topic for us to do. Um, and so I was fortunate to have, I think, I think over half of the class, it was a pretty small class, but half of the class were student athletes. So that was really cool to kind of get them involved in like learning this history and also listening to women, which is something I'm always advocating before listening to like older people, right? Like a lot of younger people tend to think that, you know, oh, my grandparents, they just like want to talk about the old stories and I'm not interested in them. And I'm like, no, their stories are really interesting. And this is also a way to show respect and also you know, um, gather that history. And so um, through that, we we did an oral history project and then students created um, a podcast series that we haven't released yet because I need to do some cleaning up of them, but it's going to be called The Field, um, which was um, a name that the students came up with. I, did, I didn't want to like force a name on them. Um, so once those are released, I'll, I'll tweet about them and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll promote them because I'm really excited about them. Um, but that was also really important to like get them to like critically engage in sport history and not just like, you know, write a paper about sport history that not many people will read or like take a test, but to actually practice the material that they've learned and have sort of a personal interest in representing the the voices of the women that they interviewed and represent them accurately. And it was interesting, like as they were creating the podcast, questions and students were asking these questions like, how do I make sure that, you know, I represent the women accurately and I don't want to like piss them off, which are like, you know, they're, they're important questions and questions that, you know, all of us that work with oral histories uh, really think about because these people mm -hmm. are still alive, you know. Um, and so I think both in terms of, you know, kind of giving students and other classes like droplets of world history, but then also having classes that really get them focused on like oral histories and stories and listening to voices and really create something digitally from them. I think that's a really uh, um, important and, and sort of easy way to get them involved in sport history. And as a kind of final question, because I want to respect your time as well, what's been the greatest challenge in bringing sport history into the classroom? Because I know in my own experience when you're dealing with student athletes like they tend to have like a vague understanding of you know like they've picked up snippets of sports history at some point so it's kind of hard to get them sometimes to think more critically about like the foundation of baseball the foundation of american football you know and dealing with those sort of things mm -hmm. so i'm wondering what's been your biggest challenge in kind of teaching sport history to the undergrads i think the one of the hardest things, and I think is, well, I guess regardless of whether you're like an athlete or a fan or whatever is, and maybe I think this is specific to the U S but you might, you might disagree is that we're like so trained to think that like sport is benevolent and to think mm. that sport is nothing, nothing but a positive thing. And that we all should be very grateful for like the sporting opportunities available to us and that sport benefits everybody equally. And 
I mean, we're, we're in a unique moment here where like people are talking, you know, there are athlete activists and people do know a little bit about how sport can be used to like oppress people, but also can be used to like resist. Mm-hmm. Um, that is something that students are aware of now that was not evident to them five years ago when I taught my first sport history class. That was kind of more of a struggle. Um, but even still, I think it's hard for people that are big, like football, like, you, you know, American football fans, for example, it's hard for them to ask these hard questions about what does football do for people? What does it demand of, of, of men in their bodies, for example? I think that's really hard for students to wrap their head around because they've been fans their whole lives. Um, and they don't, it's hard for them to kind of question what they've been raised to think. Um, but that's like my in the same way they've been raised to think American football is interesting. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. I am not a, his, uh, I'm not an American football fan at all. Um, and then the CTE stuff sort of helps to justify my own kind of dislike of football. Yeah, but I, yeah, but I, you know, but I'm a huge fan of the Olympics. You know, I was a swimmer, so I grew up like watching the Olympics and just like sitting in front of the TV for like, you know, weeks on end. But the Olympics are also incredibly problematic, you know, and are also very colonialist and very, you know, exploitative and discriminatory. So, like, I, I try to, like, sympathize by saying I have these sort of conflicted loyalties, too, and that's totally normal. And it's sort of like you have to piece them together on your own. Well, listen, I want to thank you so much for taking the time out to actually speak um, for the podcast today. Is there anything else you want to say before we wrap up the interview? I suppose, is there a, a date for when the field is going to be released or is that uh, putting too much pressure on you? <laughs> oh, no, you know, I it hasn't been released in part because, like I said, I have to comb through and kind of do a little bit of editing. And it's something that with teaching and stuff, I'm just, I've just um, kind of put on the back burner. But actually, a lot of the women that we interviewed are really – really want to hear them. Um, a lot of people in our community want to hear them. And then what people on Twitter apparently want to like listen to them. Um, so I'm hoping sometime in the summer, like once I have time to kind of um, revise them a little bit. Um, but I guess in terms of other things, I guess I didn't, at the beginning, I could have done a better job of sort of explaining Hungarian sport history, just in the sense of, you know, like people don't know anything about it. So I guess I should say that, like, in terms of why Hungary, you know, it has this, like, unique history in that it received, like, it was on the world stage and kind of dominated world sport. It's not just, it is sort of a niche and, like, unique country, but it, like, won the third most medals at the 1952 Olympic Games and, you know, only after the Americans and the Soviets, which is, like, quite astounding. Um, And so this is all to say that even though I do, like, kind of a niche topic, the fact that they were so good and the fact that athletes are still so important in society today just kind of shows how meaningfully how meaningful it was to the country. And then it's not just about, you know, the major countries that you think of, like the U.S. or Russia or France and Germany. But there are these smaller countries, geographically smaller countries that have these really important histories and that sport really matters to them as well. And, you know, if I was in any way a competent interviewer, I would have asked you that at the start. <laughs> no, 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 hey, I, I should, I should be better at pitching my project. At this point. No, no, you're, you're good. I, I don't think you need to do an elevator pitch anymore. I think you're okay. Um, but listen, I'll say thank you again. Um, we're gonna have a short uh, bio and blurb with the podcast as well, so 
people will know how to reach out to you and how to contact you. Um, but at that point, I'm going to hit stop recording and say thank you very much, Johanna. It's been an absolute pleasure. Great. Thank you so much. It was a real pleasure to talk to you. Mm-hmm.